My name is Andrew, and welcome to MIR Meets, a podcast where we discuss a wide variety of topics with guests. Today, I am sitting down with Ramesh Panuru to discuss American politics, in particular the current state of the Republican Party several months after the 2020 election and the events of January 6th. Hello, everyone. Today, I am joined by Ramesh Panuru, a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a senior editor for National Review. Ramesh Panuru, I'm very glad to have you with us. Glad to be here. All right. Um, yeah, so to begin, um, obviously, since MIR is an international publication to like, um, just for the people who may not have like dug as deep into American politics as us, you have described yourself as a reform conservative. What is reform conservatism and why do you consider yourself to be a leading figure in that movement? So reform conservatism was a term that came to be applied to a bunch of people, including me, um, generally without our protesting it. And the core idea, and this was really something that um, was developed during the second Obama term. And the idea was that US conservatism had become calcified in some ways, that it had kept a program that was developed in the late 1970s and early 1980s um, that had grown outdated that was no longer responsive to the circumstances that Americans found themselves in, um, partly because the program had been successful in some ways. So for example, the extreme concern about inflation um, that characterized the conservative response to the early Obama years was really a kind of um, hangover from the 70s and early 80s. Um, that that really w- was out of place, given that you know, we weren't having double-digit inflation. In fact, we were having some of the lowest sustained periods of inflation we'd had in decades. And so the idea of reform conservatism was to take the principles and dispositions of conservatism and apply them to solving the problems of today, the circumstances in which we actually find ourselves with the idea that this would make conservatism both uh, more sort of productive, uh, more valuable, and that it would make it more politically successful. Okay, yeah, so I guess, um, and then like to what extent would you say that it's like changed in the last few years with the advent of 2016? So I think that it's a very mixed, and complicated picture. I think that one of the reasons Donald Trump was able to succeed in the Republican Party in 2016 against a lot of predictions, against, I should frankly note, my own prediction, um, was precisely because the old Republican and conservative program or orthodoxy had become so stale. A lot of conservatives would point out that um, Trump was on the other side of traditional conservative views on healthcare and on entitlements and on all all kinds of things. And some Republican voters actively liked his heterodoxy. 
And some Republican voters just didn't care, didn't object to it, um, which was, I think, a sign that the, that the formula um, was no longer compelling, not just to swing voters, which, which had been, frankly, our focus uh, as reform conservatives, but even to a large number of Republican voters themselves. So that's part of what happened. But I think that Trump, while sort of blowing the old party to bits in some ways, didn't really replace it with something new. There was never a kind of fleshed out Trumpism and the Trump administra administration governed somewhat chaotically uh, and in a mix between you know, the president's impulses, uh, something that could be described as national conservatism, just old line traditional Republicanism of the kind he had defeated, and even some elements of reform conservatism. And I think that the future of the Republican Party, given that Trump was so uninterested in fleshing out a kind of governing philosophy, is really up for grabs now. Yeah. And I think, um, I also think a lot of the way it might be determined would just lie in the hands of like the way that um, the voters now feel like on, for example, on a tangentially related note, I was looking at like some polls, like, for example, there was an echelon insight survey that was asked, basically asked people um, in the GOP, like people who identify themselves as Republican as like, if the 2024 Republican presidential primaries were being held today, and you had a, to make a choice for whom would you vote? And 68% said that they would definitely or probably vote for Trump. And this was last month in May. Yeah. Um, you know, one interesting thing that Echelon has found also, though, is that the percentage of Republican voters who say that their loyalty is to Trump as opposed to, to the party um, has been declining uh, in recent months. So. It, this is a mixed picture. I mean, his blog um, notably had to be canceled because it was getting so little um, readership. And his former chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, has now endorsed a different candidate for the Senate from North Carolina than Trump himself has endorsed. So, um, you know, look, look, there's no question I think Henry Olson in his column in the Washington Post um, said that his influence is waning, but he also is the most influential single person in the Republican Party. And I think both halves of that formulation are correct. Okay, so like he's still the most influential, but he's not as like all, encompass all, at all encompassing as he used to be. That's right. And of course, the, 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 there's a limit to the kind of influence he can uh, exercise given his own lack of uh, willingness to, you know, to be disciplined, to uh, engage on policy issues, uh, and so forth. Um, yeah, so I guess that's, um, that's true, but I'm going to play devil's advocate again and bring up another poll from Ipsos Reuters that mentions that 56% um, of Republicans believe the election was rigged or the result of illegal voting and 53% think Donald Trump is the actual president and not Joe Biden. Do you think those numbers will decline in the future? Well, I certainly hope so. Those are, uh, those are problematic numbers. Um, I think that, 
this will sound like it's an attempt to um, excuse that kind of response, which uh, which it really isn't. I, but I do think that um, uh, people sometimes will answer these questions in a way that does not indicate their literal belief, but their uh, desire to mess with the pollsters. And the reason I say that's not an excuse is because it basically means, even if it's not sincerely held, that you're willing to affirm ludicrous things and sometimes contradictory things um, in order to signal your membership in uh, the group, in this case, conservatives, Republicans, Trump supporters. Um, and I think that's a very bad thing. Um, I thought it was bad in the 2000s um, when a significant number of Democrats would indicate to pollsters that they thought that 911 was an inside job by the George W. Bush administration. But this strikes me as worse because you've got so many Republicans, starting with the most influential Republican of all, who are feeding um, this kind of nonsense uh, and other Republicans who are not contradicting it, or at least not contradicting it in public. Yeah. And like the whole thing about like what you said about messing with the pollsters, I think that also ties into something you mentioned in the Ezra Klein show where like people, people signal things that they don't actually believe, but even then they're like, they're at least putting their foot in the door and like beginning a process that might lead to them eventually actually believing it. Yes, that's absolutely right. I think that people are capable of persuading, I should say, we are capable of persuading ourselves of a great many things, particularly if we repeat them a lot, um, or if we are exposed to uh, one point of view without much contradiction, or at least contradiction from people we trust. Do you think that might also extend to like Republicans in Congress and like what their relationship with Trump was during the administration, where like at first they like tepidly supported him, but like over time, they rationalize themselves into like actually believing in him. Yeah, you know, there were always people who had this very cynical view of Republican politicians. Cynicism with respect to politicians is often warranted, but can also be taken too far. And they would say things like, well, you know, all these Republicans are sticking with Trump, um, you know, during the, the Ukraine impeachment. Uh, because they're afraid of their voters. And sure, of course, that kind of political calculation is there. But it underestimates the extent to which people just sincerely thought that impeachment was wrong, that it was, uh, that this was a partisan abuse by the Democrats. Um, and I think that a lot of things fed into that. And one of them is simply that, you know, you've had multiple years, if you're a Republican congressman, in which you are fighting alongside President Trump and his administration on a wide range of policy issues and fighting against the Democrats on those same issues. I mean, that, that over time, that changes your reflexes, it changes your instincts, it changes your sensibilities. Yeah, and also um, like, for example, um, like in the immediate aftermath of January 6th, there were a lot of Republicans like um, Mitch McConnell and Kevin McConnell Kevin McCarthy, who would like vocally condemn the violence that Trump was incited. But like at this point, Liz Cheney has been ousted just because like she's not one of those people that's willing to like sit by in the corner and not like continue to condemn those actions. Right. Um, so there were sort of two strands, I think, of opposition 
to Cheney among House Republicans. And one were, was the, the, the group of people who were upset simply because she had voted to impeach the president. Um, but that was, or the former president, um, that wasn't a majority of the Republican conference. So she won that first vote. The, the group that proved decisive were people who thought um, that uh, it was you know, time to move on, uh, that it was wrong for Cheney to just continue to, to harp on this issue. Um, and that instead uh, Republicans should just sort of move past Trump and stop talking about him. Um, it's not, however, a strategy that there, it's, it's sort of a, it's more of a path of, of least resistance than a strategy um, because um, the people who are in this camp have no plan to deal with the fact that Trump doesn't want to move on uh, and doesn't want anybody to move on from him. Um, and they're not really speaking up when other Republicans will say that the election was stolen or um, you know, make similarly unfounded claims. Yeah, so the whole thing about what you mentioned with the path of least resistance where like, like, the, like the whole thing about like them saying they should move on, like in truth, you're right that Trump doesn't want to move on. So may, maybe they're rationalizing. And do you think like the sort of path of least resistance was also the path that led to a lot of people who initially opposed Trump like during the 2016 election where once he became the nominee, they just like went into the fold because it was the path of least resistance. So there were, there were many reasons that people who had historically been Republicans opposed Trump in 2016. Some of those reasons persisted, but some of them fell away. Uh, and so it shouldn't be surprising that the number of such Republicans dwindled over time. If your major objection to Donald Trump in 2016 was that he didn't have much history of being a conservative Republican and couldn't be trusted to stick with conservatives on issues like guns or taxes or the right to life, then the way he governed um, largely allayed those objections. He, he stuck with the Republican coalition on every issue that was important to the Republican coalition. If on the other hand, your objection was more in the nature of the man's being personally unfit for office given his massive character flaws, then I would say his conduct in office didn't disprove that set of objections. It instead vindicated them every day. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there, there's another train of thought I want to pursue with the Republican Party, which is like, in the aftermath of like the 2012 election, um, there was this internal party like autopsy from Reigns Privis or however you pronounce it, which was like talking about why they lost and what they would need to like continue to like get people elected to the president. And the results of that autopsy was mainly that like they need to appeal more to um, voters that they um, tend to get less votes from like people of color and like younger voters and stuff. Um, so obviously um, like the election of Trump allayed those fears temporarily, but like that doesn't necessarily mean that those voters that tend to not 
vote for Trump are going away. Um, in the words of um, Stuart Stevens in the book about nepotropism, there's not fewer Hispanics because of Trump, there's not fewer Asians, there's not fewer African-Americans, there's not more high school only white voters. It's all still headed the wrong way. So like, obviously um, they haven't won the popular vote since 1988. Um, so regarding the Republican party's minoritarian rule, do you see the Republican party losing its electoral viability sometime in the near future? So um, it's true that they have won the popular vote nationally only once since 1988 uh, in uh, the Bush re-election campaign in 2004. Um, but they have maintained competitiveness. And I think that some of the predictions that a lot of people made about Trump's effects on the Republican party have not been borne out, or at least they have not been borne out yet. Um, it's true, I think, that Trump threw away a winnable election in 2020, um, but the Republican Party came awfully close. Uh, I believe that uh, had 90,000 votes in the right places shifted, Republicans would have gotten the trifecta uh, in 2020. So and maybe it was the just reason, like COVID response? I'm sorry, what? Maybe it was like just his response to COVID? Well, I think the COVID response was absolutely a big part of it. Um, and not even so much, frankly, the policy element of his response as the rhetorical element of it. His, for example, inability to project the kind of empathy that a political leader in this circumstance normally would for um, the people who were suffering or grieving. Um, but one of the reasons I think that the Republicans have managed to stay competitive is that there's a certain kind of demographic determinism that is overstated. Um, there's a demographic challenge, there are demographic challenges to the Republican coalition, certainly, um, but there is nothing inevitable about the percentage of the non-white vote that Republicans have gotten. And between 2012 and 2016, and then again between 2016 and 2020, Republicans have made gains, um, varying uh, in those two election cycles, but between 12 and 20, uh, Republicans certainly did better among Hispanics, among Asian Americans, and among African Americans. Um, so that's something that I think the Democrats are, particularly with respect to the Hispanic vote, are quite concerned about right now. Um, and it suggests that these sort of, sort of the claim that uh, there's a kind of rising American electorate that makes the Democrats a natural majority party going forward, that, that seems pretty tenuous. Yeah, like maybe it was a bit of an exaggeration or a bit premature. Right, and I think it's, it's a, I know you want me to mostly talk about the, the Republican Party today, but I do think that, that the theory of inevitable victory on the part of Democrats has had something to do with their failure to actually achieve those victories. Oh, that's interesting. I, that's, that's a really interesting point. Um, okay, so I'm gonna ask you a, another question that um, I myself have struggled with a little bit. So like, obviously I mentioned like the, the poll numbers before where like, even if Trump's like 
like Trump's influence on his base is dwindling. It's still significant as of right now. So let's say like, let's say hypothetically speaking that Republicans decide to pull their full force into impeaching and convicting Trump and like rejecting his lies about the election. Do you think that as a result, they would have lost the support of their voters afterwards? If all the Republicans had done that, um, I, I think that it, it's pretty hard for a party to uh, go against its own voters on an issue that's important to them, um, especially the, the bulk of its own voters. Um, so I, I think at the very least that would have caused a, a kind of schism that would have taken a lot of time to heal. Yeah. If, you, if it was going to happen, it would have had to happen pretty quickly, I think. Yeah. Uh, and the Republican leaders involved would just have to hope that the kind of, uh, a kind of uniform swing um, would cause a, a significant chunk of, of their voters to go along. Yeah, and like even that is arguably an optimistic interpretation. Right. It. Uh, yeah. I mean, you, you can you can see why they didn't do it. Yeah, and that that doesn't necessarily make it right or even excusable, but it does show you why they did it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. No, I mean, I was I was for both uh, impeachments of uh, President Trump. Yeah. All right. Um. One last question. Um. In your appearance on the Ezra Klein show, one you mentioned that like one of the things that's like central to your political philosophy is the idea that like we all have a real difficulty understanding the beliefs of people who are unlike us or disagree with us. So um, to conclude, what are some reasonable intellectual voices on either side of the political aisle that you would recommend that people listen to or read from? Uh, well, while I try to think of some of them, let me just preface uh, any such list by really um, underscoring the premise of your question. I think it's very important, A, to read people from widely varying points of view about politics, uh, and B, to choose the strongest, most intellectually compelling examples of those points of view um, when, you are, when you are doing that reading, um, not just sort of the loudest uh, or the easiest to refute or the weakest. Um, I think there, there are, are tons of, uh, of places that you can read. Um, I myself read National Review um, where I work Quite regularly, I think we've got an impressive group of writers um, with a range of conservative and libertarian viewpoints. Uh, but I also read the Washington Examiner uh, and uh, the the Bulwark, which is a little bit more uh, single-mindedly anti-Trump. Uh, the Dispatch, uh, where my friends Jonah Goldberg and, and Stephen Hayes, yeah, the Dispatch uh, and David French are ensconced. Um, those are all uh, all really great publications with a lot of uh, of solid writers, um, and of the Wall Street Journal editorial page is another um, publication among many others that I read regularly. On the left, uh, I read uh, Slate, 
um, which gives you a certain kind of, uh, of left-wing view. I think um, Jonathan Chait at New York Magazine is, uh, is very uh, intelligent, sometimes persuasive, um, advocate of a liberal point of view, uh, or I guess progressive uh, is, the, is the more preferred term these days. Um, I've always enjoyed reading Katha Pollitt's columns in The Nation. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I could, I, 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 if I were to start writing down such a, a list, I think it would, uh, it could go on for a, a long time. But I think the key thing is to expose yourself to multiple points of view. Yes, um, I agree. And with that, uh, thank you for coming on. This has been a great interview. You're so welcome. Really glad to do it. This has been MIR Meets. Thank you for listening. And if you like the episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye.